Good morning, village. Let's find our seats. Prepare to dive into Acts 17. Anyone still watch the news? few people here. It's hard to know where to get news. But when you watch the news, it can be just very discouraging, right? Uh, there's, there's a lot of junk going on in our world. I think we would all agree with that. And, and so today's title, and I'm going to start with the title, is Reaching a Secularized, God-Unknowing World. And, and when, I, when I look around, and even as, as Jim prayed, we live in a world that is definitely not God-fearing. A world that is fully secularized, that has just given into that. God unknowing world, sometimes we call that a post-Christian society, where people don't believe in God, people for the first time don't know who Jesus is that we talk to. And, and so we live in a very different world than even 50 years ago. You know, when I think of some of the, the world views that are out there, you have naturalism or materialism. And materialism says this is all there is. Do what you want. If it makes you happy, it must be okay. Um, you only live once. YOLO theology. Um, we have atheism where there is no God, and, and, but yet so many of the atheists I know spend a lot of time being angry at God. And so probably they're more agnostic than atheists. You have utilitarianism, which means pleasure and happiness over pain and unhappiness. And you make your decisions based on what will give pleasure and happiness. Pragmatism. Well, what works? The ends justify the means. These are all philosophies that I would bet you've encountered even in the last week. Secularism. And, and today we're seeing that in so much of our media and so much of the, the um, messaging that's out there. Standing against what even smells like religion. Man can do it. Humanism would be, would be part of this. Um, relativism. There's no truth but your own. And so you get statements like, you do you. Or, what, what is your truth? And I'm like, well, what is the truth? Let, let's, it, it's hard. We have pluralism. We have tolerance. All these are worldviews that are pounding in on us on all sides. And at times, when you interact with these things, at least for me, my head can just be swimming. I don't know what worldview this person's coming from. I don't know what worldview this person's coming from. I don't know how to reach into their lives. And, and it can be just so challenging to live as Christians in this kind of secularized, God-unknowing world. But this morning we want to come to the text because this is not the first time in history that this has been a secularized world. This is not the first time in history that this has been a God-unknowing, God-not-fearing world. And so we want to come to Acts 17 where Paul is now going to engage with the secularized portion of the world, with the the world that doesn't know God, doesn't know anything about Yahweh, the one true God, that is coming from actually a couple of these very same worldviews. And the challenge with this morning and what I've been wrestling with all week is Paul is speaking to a world that was 2,000 years ago. And we are experiencing all these things in a world today. And so somehow we have to go back to the biblical world and understand the text and then jump forward to say, what does God have for us in this text? And so we're going we're gonna to attempt that today as we go through some of the arguments Paul makes. But also I want to look at the ways Paul makes those arguments. I want to learn from his example and learn from his content. And that will be the two sides of your notes. The first side is learning from his example, some of the skills for reaching this world. 
And the backside will be some of the content he used. And I think you'll be surprised at the content. Because when, when, when I talk with people, and this is part of the debate side of me, and that, that was sort of my thing in, in schooling, was debate and, and just getting into these discussions. And the debate side of me wants to take these worldviews and just pick them apart, shred them, and, and, you know, trash them and light them on fire. And therefore, I have proved them wrong and changed their lives. All on Twitter. And it has never happened that way. And that's not the approach Paul takes. And it's really interesting. I think we can learn so much from the approach Paul takes to, to reaching into our world today. So turn to Acts 17 if you're not already there. Acts chapter 17. We're going to be looking at verses 16 to 34. 16 to 34. And we're going to see how Paul dealt with this. And some of the things will be specific to Paul's situation, but I'm hoping that some of the principles will be general enough that we can apply them to our situation. Acts 17, 16 through 34. And so we start with some of the skills for reaching this world, the heart that Paul had for for reaching this world, the method he used. The first starts in verse 16. Now, while, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens... His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So this is where we get maps with Ron. And if you remember, we're on the second missionary journey. And um, they left from Antioch, did the overland route to Tarsus, went through here. God directed them to Macedonia. So they came here and went up here um, and eventually went through Philippi. And we saw them go to Thessalonica here, Berea. And when we last left our heroes last week, we saw that um, Silas and Timothy stayed in Berea and Paul was rushed down to Athens. And we don't know if it was by sea or there is a land route. The, the text isn't clear. But he ends up with, in Athens and the rest of his team is up here. And so he's alone here in Athens. He sends word and says, come to me soon. And, and so they're going to be on their way down to him. But this scene takes place before his partners in ministry have arrived. And Paul is... is engaging the city he's walking around the city and he is troubled by what he sees now athens is is very similar to to one of the other cities we talked about it's a free city so under roman influence but it had been granted the ability to rule itself it is a city that's a little bit in decline um so athens was is known for philosophy philosophers and and just being the the head of intellect the, the center of intellect Gentile culture, Gentile thought. But at this point, population is starting to wane a little bit. And, um, but it's still such a powerful center. And we read that text. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And the first thing we have to learn, the first skill we have to have, if we're going to reach into this world, we have to have a grieved heart at idolatry a grieved heart at people worshiping something other than God Almighty, than the one true God. It should bother us. It should disturb us to the point of wanting to do something about it. And the, the, the word provoked there, is, it's actually a very strong word. It, it's a word that isn't just, oh, I, I'm, I'm a little frustrated, or I'm a little upset. You know, it, it actually means to be infuriated. And so Paul's walking around Almost every building that they've uncovered in Athens has some sort of carved image on it. 
carved idol. Idolatry was rampant in this town. We're going to see from, it's sort of ironic because some of the worldviews there don't match that. Some do, and it looks like they're sort of covering their bases. But, but even in the, the center of, of town, or actually up on the hill above town, is a, a temple to Athena up at the Parthenon. I think I put a picture of that in there. So this is up on a hill above town, and this was one of the great temples of the time. Let me just read a description. Measures 228 feet by 101 feet. By the way, that's bigger than this room. And this is ancient architecture. It's 23,000 square feet. It includes columns that stand 34 feet high with a diameter at the base of 6 feet. The columns support a roof made of richly ornamented slabs of marble depicting a variety of scenes. Inside the temple stands a 39-foot statue of Athena. That was one of many gods. One of the main gods... But we have a 39-foot statue of Athena. That's probably a little taller than this. I forget, is this 30 feet high? Anyone like really good with looking and saying? Um, I, I think this is about 30 feet high. So a statue higher than this was in, in the Pantheon there. Or the Parthenon, sorry. Parthenon. And so this is what Paul is walking around seeing. He's walking around the marketplace, which is below this. You can look up and see it, and we'll talk about that in a minute. He's walking around, and and that whole marketplace is lined by idols. And, And the Word says his spirit was provoked. He was infuriated. And and as we're going to see in, in his dealing with this, he was infuriated at the fact that idolatry and worldliness and the, the ungodliness is pervasive here and affecting the people here. And so his heart is moved to a point of saying, I need to do something about this. I need to address this. And so we get to, to 17 through 21, the next skill, the next method that he used. Paul engaged the philosophies of the day on their turf and in a way that raised their curiosity. This is just brilliant. Let's read it and see what you can um, see what we, we see here. Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. None of that's new, right? Everywhere he went, he went to the synagogue first. He also, the devout people were the Gentile God-fearers. And so that's part of his normal messaging and, and some of the messages we've already seen in Acts, the sermons we've already seen in Acts. But here in Athens, we have an added thing. And in the marketplace every day with those that happen to be there. So because he's moved by the idols, he adds something to his agenda. Not only goes to the the God-fearing people, he starts hanging out in the marketplace. Because that's where people hung out. You know, not much more simple than that. That's where the people were, so he went to the people. He went to where they would be talking about things. Because his heart was moved to reach them. So he went to the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now we get to find out some of those people. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And the word for babbler there was, was taken from a bird that would just sort of get some bird seed here and there, pick and choose. And it had transferred into someone that would just sort of pick and choose truth but didn't really know what they were talking about and then spew something back to sound intellectual. And so that's what they're calling Paul. <laughs> he's ready for them, and we're going to see a little, little, little bit later. But remember, Athens is the center of intellectual thought, and a lot of pride comes with intellectualism. And so they think they know more 
They think they know better, and everyone else is just a babbler. Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And so some, again, this is a world that hadn't heard of Jesus. The resurrection, Anastasis was the the word that was used for that. Um, They they assumed that was a female name. And so they're thinking he's preaching a a male goddess, God, Jesus, and a female goddess, the resurrection. This is how secularized they were. And, And they couldn't even comprehend of a physical resurrection. And we're going to get to verse 19. But we see that Paul engaged the philosophies of the day on their turf, and in a way that raised their, their curiosity. We're going to find that out in the next couple of verses. But let me go back and talk a little bit about these, these two philosophies, the Epicurean philosophy and the Stoic philosophy or Stoicism, because these are what his argument is going to be confronting, and I think we can find these as two of the major philosophies of our day. Not the only ones, but two of the ones we encounter. Epicurean. Um, the Epicurean philosophy is, is materialism, and it means this stuff that we see is all there is. There is nothing more than this life. When we're gone, we're gone. And so you can start to think through what that kind of worldview would lead to, right? If this is all there is, what would we be about? Getting as much pleasure, getting as much out of this life as we can. And so there, the Epicurean would say, there is nothing that is God. If there is a God, God is far off distant, sort of poofed us into existence, or, or just actually they don't even believe in creation. They believe the atoms just came together. Sound familiar? And, and they believe, though, that if there is a God, and they don't believe there is, He is so distant that we will never know Him, we will never touch Him, and He's doing His own thing somewhere off in space somewhere. And so the Epicurean model is, is this model that is all based on what is here and now in materialism. It's unnecessary to seek after God. It's unnecessary to fear Him or His judgment because He is far away. Doesn't really matter. And boy, do we see that today, right? And this is one of the, the cultures of our day. Materialism, this is all that matters. This is what I'm going to seek after. And so... Even, even people that say they believe in God, we live as what we call practical atheists. We act like we don't believe there's a God. We act like there's no judgment. There's no consequences. And so this is one of the groups that Paul's engaging with. Sounds fun, right? And, and so they definitely are, are live to the full and do what you want. For those of you that are um, the OG Star Trek fans, um, this would be sort of the Captain Kirk philosophy. And the Stoicism will be the Spock philosophy. So just um, a third of you get that. The other third, um, I won't even say don't go back and watch it. It's really bad. But, um, <laughs> it's, not, but it's great at the same time. It's, it's so bad you can't stop watching. Um, <laughs> and if someone's wearing a red shirt and you've never seen them before, you're not going to see them again. But okay, sorry, spoilers. Um, <laughs> So the Epicurean philosophy is, is live life to the full, do what you want. Now, I, I want to clarify this a little bit because this can sound, and, and they say they're all about pleasure, but not in the same way we think of pleasure. We think of pleasure as maybe, maybe hedonism, sexual pleasure, indulging in our desires. For them, pleasure was the avoidance of pain and discomfort. 
So it was living in, in harmony with nature. Sorry, that's a little bit snarky. Um, and, and so this is what they're after. There is no concept of sin with the Epicurean theology. There's just the avoidance of actions that produce pain. That's the objective. And so they sought pleasure, like I said, not just physically, but to be at peace, to enjoy life in that way. So the other group that it says Paul is dealing with is the Stoics. Stoicism there. Now, now whereas Epicureans where there is no God or God is so distant he's not even in, in our reality, the Stoics would say everything and everyone is God. And so there would be 150 gods in this room right now. Actually, I forgot the chairs and, and I forgot the carpet and the lights. and Everything is God and everything sort of has this divine spark and they would actually call it the Logos, which is really interesting when we look at some of the other New Testament. We can't get into that this morning. This divine spark of Godhood is in everything and everyone. The tree, God. The sun, God. The mountain, God. That might be, okay, no. The wave, God. You and I, God. And so this would be a little comparable to New Age theology today. And, and, but, and New Age can have this, oh, I don't want to be there. I actually think this also is infused in culture today because as soon as you have no supreme being you answer to, you either have no God or everything's God. Those are, those are your choices. And so Paul is dealing with those two things. Paul Hill said, the ultimate divine principle was to be found in all of nature, including human beings. Now, where they go with this, that's, that was the beginning point of this philosophy, but all philosophies and worldviews sort of grow with time. And, and if you love philosophy, you're eating up this morning. If you don't, enjoy it. <laughs> Bear with me. Um, they, they sort of had to come up with a way, okay, how do, we, how do we handle this if everything's God? And they came up with reason being the ultimate rational principle that ties the divine together in this world. And so the way we all relate to each other is by elevating reason above everything else. Reason above emotions. Reason above experiences. It's all about reason. Reality is identical to divinity. Thus, the highest form of reality is through reason dealing with our reality. Properly understanding reality. Thus, they would say, when we live by reason, we can reach our full potential. Do you see why I say Spock? Okay, yeah. When we live by reason, we can receive, reach our full potential. Self-sufficiency is part of this worldview. Pleasure is not good. Pain is not bad. Okay? Because just be even. Just, just be even here. And so emotionless. Now, now, one of the other things that comes out of the Stoic philosophy, which is really interesting, they actually held a pretty strong view of the brotherhood of people and trees, and animals, because they didn't really distinguish between humans and, and non-humans. But if all things are tied together because we have this divine spark in us, then there's a kinship in each of us because we all share in Godhood. Okay? Following me so far? And so you lose the distinction between human beings and animals, for instance. And so you get things like elevating save the whales over save the babies or other things like this. So, you know, we have puppy rescues instead of being kind and loving your neighbor. And we're, we're, we're losing the distinction that human beings are somehow different. And that's coming from a Stoic philosophy. There is no difference. 
you know, their concept of sin is also no concept of sin. Error is nothing more than the failure of attaining the ideal or acting contrary to reason and the laws of nature. There is no concept of offending the will of an all-holy, righteous being. These are the two major worldviews. Now, Athens had a lot more than this, okay? These are the two that Paul, major ones that Paul is dealing with. There is no God. This is it. Do what you want. Everything is God. So we are all united in this spark of reason. And both of them say there's no resurrection. There's no one we answer to. You're on your own. One author I was reading described the Epicurean philosophy as enjoy life and the Stoic philosophy as endure life. Okay. Along with this, Paul is also dealing with just the Greek polytheists. So, so Stoicism is pantheism, which means God is in everything. But there's also Greek polytheists, which is where you get the Greek mythology and Zeus and all of the gods that they worship. How do you reach this environment? How, how do you, and, and I think that's the right question to ask because I don't think we're, we encounter people that are all that different. I think we encounter people that functionally believe there is no God and, and we're to do what we want. I believe that we, we deal with other people that would say I'm spiritual or I have some sort of spiritualism and it works out in a lot of different ways. Whether it be pantheistic, God is in everything, or polytheistic, there's a whole bunch of gods and we better get it right. And so this is the environment Paul engages in. But those verses, 17 through 21, he engaged in the philosophies of the day. He didn't run from them. He went to them. He engaged with them on their turf and in a way that raised their curiosity. Let me read starting at verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? So they bring him up to the Areopagus, which was a, a, a hill that was above the marketplace, but not as high as the, the Pantheon or the Parthenon. Um, and it was a place where they would meet to discuss things. Possibly a trial. And, and scholars are split. Are they, are they bringing Paul up to put him on trial for this? Or are they just wanting to hear more? I would lean more towards it's sort of an official gathering to hear more, but you, because you don't have trial language. You don't have um, a number of things that would be necessary for a trial, but it is probably a semi-official gathering saying, hey, everyone, let's get together. We're going to hear from Paul. We're going to hear what this babbler has to say, maybe ask some questions, laugh a little bit, and we're good. But they were curious. Paul had presented himself in a way that raised their curiosity. And there's some great lessons there of how can we do that with people. And, and so they're already curious about Jesus and, and the girl resurrection. They're confused because Paul had given them just enough to have them ask more questions. He asked open-ended questions in all his dealings with people. He made statements that got questions asked. He, he didn't just blast them with, this is right, this is wrong. This, he gets there, but he does, that, does this in this way that draws them in into a conversation. So they're curious. They bring him up to the Areopagus. Do I have a picture of the Areopagus? Yes. So up above there, you, you see the temple to Athena. Down below would be the marketplace. And this is the Areopagus where they would meet. It's, there probably were, were buildings there, but today this is the, the flat area. 
And so this is where Paul is. It's a hill overlooking the main street. Interesting, um, in Greek it means hill of war, but in, in, in its Roman name was Mars Hill. So have you heard of Mars Hill? And this is where we get that, a place where questioning of philosophies could happen. And so what did Paul do? So, nope, not going. No, and they took him, brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. Amen. And that's the curiosity. He brought strange things that they just didn't know what to do with to their ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul knew the Athenians were all about curiosity. They were all about hearing something new. In fact, one of the traditions, one of the historians remarked that the Athenians were going about the city asking for the latest new news at the very moment when the armies of Philip of Macedon were knocking at their door. So they're about to go to war, but they valued more. Hey, do you have anything new to tell me? Do you have anything I haven't heard before? And so this is the, the culture of this time. And so Paul goes. And Paul goes to where they would listen to the message because they're asking questions. And so if we can engage people in the culture around us in a way that gets them to ask questions, in a way that engages them, that will help us in presenting truth. We can do that with our neighbors. We can do that with our coworkers. Ask questions about what they believe. Make open-ended statements. We can ask questions even like, so do you believe in creation? How do you think everything came about? That's a great open-ended question, which is where Paul starts. That's, that's why I got it from Paul. Um, and, and begin to engage in these conversations and take a long view of bringing them to the kingdom rather than if they don't accept Christ in the next five minutes, it's over. But this is about relationship. Don't dump your whole message at once. Lead them. When someone is led to coming up to a conclusion on their own, they hold to it longer. They believe it. But also listen to their questions. Care about them. And so all of this is how Paul engaged. Third thing, just on method. And we've got to keep moving. Look for, this is exciting stuff. Look for ways to find common ground in worldview and values and use those as a starting point. It's very similar to the last one, but that's more about generating curiosity, going to them. This is look for opportunities. Look for common ground. Look for worldview things that we have in common. I would bet that no matter who you're trying to reach, you could find some worldview issues and values that you have in common. Maybe not a lot. Maybe not about Christianity. But use these things as a foundation to be able to go further. And so we have verses 22 and 23. And Paul here, we're seeing him. He's observant. He's looking around. He's seeing the culture. And he finds a way to use it. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. Now this is probably not an insult. Some have said, well, he's insulting them. I don't see that here. That's not the response we get. I think Paul's saying, you know what? I can see you think about these things. I can see that you're developing a worldview about the supernatural. You're very religious. He just walked by hundreds of idols. So this is more the, the obvious observation of the day. He says, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your wor- worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, 
to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. This is an absolutely brilliant way to start this talk to an intellectual. He acknowledges what he sees. You're very spiritual. You're very religious. And then he had, he had been there enough and done enough looking around and observation to know they had an altar to the unknown God. Now, in, in our polytheists that were of the group, their, their tradition was to make sure you tried to get every God and appease every God so that way you could get what you want. And if perchance you missed one, you don't want to make them angry. So we have an altar to an unknown God. Um, the, the pantheists where God is in everything, they'd be okay with that too because we want to make sure we, we've gotten God in everything and gotten everything there and um, because to leave part of God out would not be reasonable. Um, this might not play as well with the Epicureans of the, the group. But he starts with finding something in their culture, in their city. He entered their world. And, and I, I want to be careful when I say this because there's all kinds of debate. Do we enter the world of a secular person that we're trying to reach? And my answer is yes, without sinning and without compromising. And we're going to see Paul did not compromise his message, but he entered their world to reach them and to know what, what mattered to them. And I know there's a fine line and, and, and there's all kinds of... I, I've seen some take it to where I'm even going to sin to reach people. I'm like, God doesn't want you to do that. Um, but... But here we see Paul reaching into another culture and another worldview to gain a hearing for the gospel. He entered their world. This is probably, this, this message is the best example of Paul's teaching to the Gentiles we have in all of Scripture. And so he starts with this common ground and he begins to build a, a bridge off this. And so he says, I see you have a, um, a, a, an altar to an unknown God. You want to know about him? You want to know who that is? You want to know what you don't know? Now, for the Athenian, what I've already described, the Athenians, what I don't know? Okay. Reason is everything. Knowledge is everything. So tell me about this. And so he's bringing them in. What Paul is not saying here is that that altar is to Yahweh. Okay? So they were not worshiping Yahweh on accident. He is using something from their culture to bridge into showing their, their errors in thinking and bringing them to an understanding of Yahweh. And so we can do the same thing. How can we relate to the people we're trying to talk to? He, one of the great places to start that you can do with your neighbor or coworker that doesn't know Jesus, that has a, a completely different worldview, talk family. Talk family. Most people have at least some sort of basic family values that are similar. And it's a starting point to start a conversation. Then you can get to, okay, where do you think those values come from? How did you get those? And, and now we get into a more philosophical or intellectual discussion. But things like that. Maybe ask the question, what world do you think our kids will have? That's, that's a fascinating one to hear where someone's coming from. Um, maybe talk about, you know, this world's falling apart. Most people agree with that right now. The world just seems like it's falling apart. But think, do you think there's a bigger reason for all of this? And you're beginning to engage and find areas that maybe you can explore with further conversations. Not all of these will work. But then you can move, if they answer that one, to, you know what? I found an answer to this. I found hope. And maybe that opens up a conversation. Okay, so now in 15 minutes, let's go to the message. What did Paul preach? 
And, and some of this is familiar to us. I wanted to get some of the method. And I know there's a fourth point I haven't done. We get that in the middle of the message. So, okay, so don't, don't think I'm leaving you hanging. It's coming. Um, but in, in verse 24, we get to, okay, what did he say? How did he go about doing this? How did he make this bridge? And he starts with creation. And point number one there, use creation and the creator to start gently correcting wrong views of God. As I've talked with missionaries and looked at some missionary strategy, if a culture has incorrect views of God, you have to start there. And so in our culture, 50 years ago, we we didn't have to start with creation. Creation was assumed. A creator was assumed. That is not the case, Village, anymore in this world. And so now in our discussions with someone that doesn't know God, we have to start with an intellectual discussion of, of the creator and creation. And, and you may not have the, the 50 points to prove creation. That's okay. It's still a conversation you're going to have because a great place to start is how do you think all this, th- this stuff came to be? Do you really believe that's random? Do you know the odds of this all random coming together are infinitesimal? Couldn't have happened. And, and then, then if, if they argue back, say, can, can I share what I think is a more reasonable explanation? And and then you don't have to push on their buttons to say, hey, this is what I think is a more reasonable explanation. And this is what Paul does in 24 through 26. Point number one, use creation and the creator to start gently correcting wrong views of God. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, again, he's, he's using the unknown God. Let me tell you about him. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, so being supreme, being above, which already counters both of the the intellectual views he's dealing with, does not live in temples made by man. Keep in mind, he's on the Areopagus looking up at the temple. I I think he pointed, but that's that's just my own little thought. He does not live in temples served by human, or made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Those three verses are loaded with theology. Okay, and, and we probably have a summary of Paul's discussion here. We don't know that for sure, but that's, that's my thought. Um, But he starts with, there is one God above all, and he is Lord of this world. He created everything. And so he he confronts the Epicureans with that there is more to this life because it's created on purpose, because there is a creator. It's not just atoms that came together. He confronts them that we need God to live life, breath, and everything. He is not absent. By the way, this is why evolution is so important for the secular viewpoint of today. Because it eliminates the creator. It eliminates accountability to a creator. It eliminates the need for a creator for life and breath and everything. And so it is deliberately, it's a, it's a, a viewpoint that deliberately is attempting to undermine the existence and the need for God. Which is why I, th- I don't believe... That, that true Christianity is compatible with any form of evolution. And, and, and we can get into that. 
I can talk science with you about it because actually science, the more rational argument or the most, more rational explanation is creation, not evolution. As you look at the evidence, that's true. And so Paul here is, is just confronting them, saying there has to be a creator. There is. And he's using a, a lot of natural theology, natural revelation to do this. But he's also confronting the Stoics that say God is in everything by saying, no, no, there's one supreme God above all things. So he is alienating everyone from the start. But he's doing it in a winsome, winsome way. It's the concept that he's not backing down from the truth, but he's saying there's a God that created everything. Creation differentiates the creator from the creation. It differentiates us from God. And so then he goes on to say that we need God for everything, for life and breath and everything. Man is not constrained in anything, or God, I'm sorry, God is not constrained in anything made by man because God made everything. How can a supreme being be constrained by temples, be held in temples? We see the self-sufficiency of God. He doesn't need anything. Whereas with idolatry, idols always need something. Maybe even to be put on a cart and carried from place to place. Or they need some sort of sacrifice. Or they need this or they need that to be happy. God doesn't need anything. He wants relationship with us, but He doesn't need anything. He is completely above creation. He is the source of life. Jeremiah 10.5, throughout the Old Testament, and Paul's argument here, by the way, while he's making bridges into secular world, it is firmly rooted in Old Testament theology. Throughout, it's dripping in Old Testament theology, but he doesn't quote the Old Testament. Why not? They don't know the Old Testament. That has no authority for them, so he's using brilliantly things that they would accept to then lead them to the truth that's in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 10.5 says, Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Don't be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil Neither is it in them to do good. When we studied Isaiah, we saw you cut down a tree. Half of it you use for firewood. The other half you bow down and worship as Lord of the universe. Makes no sense. And neither does modern day idolatry. Where we put anything above God. At the bottom of that, not only is God creator, but He's the provider and sovereign over all things. He made from one man every nation of mankind. Now that, again, is dealing with one of their, their philosophies. They felt like Athenians were created, or not created, they, they rose up from dust separately from everyone else, and they were a, a superior race because of that. Paul's like, no, no, no. We are all from one man, from the Creator. We are all creation, not the Creator. And so he, he says, we're made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. And this says God is sovereign over nations. He's over, sovereign over boundaries. He's sovereign over seasons. He's sovereign over times. This is what he is doing. And all of this, Paul is saying, God is God. We are not. God is supreme. And so he's correcting their views of God. Just for fun... Man, I wish we had more time this morning. Just for fun, what attributes of God does creation show? This is, why, why do we start with creation? But what, and to answer that, what attributes of God does creation show? Give me some. Okay. 
<laughs> no, okay, one at a time. So, All-powerful. Order. What, what was that? Resurrection and redemption. Okay, so because he's created, and he'll redeem it back to himself? Oh, I get it. Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, so it's a picture of that. Good. Someone over here. What was that? Creative. I, I wrote that down because that's not one we study as an attribute of God, but man, creation shows God's creativity all over the place, doesn't it? Ownership overall. A creator has lordship, which is why the world has to get rid of the creator. And, and so all these worldviews, and we could go on and on with that. Some of them that I wrote down, um, if I can find my place in my notes because I've gone all over the place now. Um, the greatness of God, the goodness of God, the rain falls on the just and the unjust, the self-sufficiency of God, the imminence of God as God is with us and giving us life and breath, the transcendence of God, He is above all things. And then, yeah, I put creativity of of God because I think that's there. Um, And so Paul starts at creation. The next thing he points to is relationship. Number two. He points to relationship, both our desire for God and his desire for us. And these are steps, what Paul isn't doing here is countering everything that they believe that's wrong. He's coming back to the basic truth of creation, relationship, fall, and redemption. The gospel can be clear. The gospel is easy to explain. It's not easy to follow, but it's easy to explain. And so he points to relationship, that they should seek God, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way around toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each of us. And and, and he's talking about, okay, why did God create everything? Why is God sovereign? That we would seek him. Village, God created us. He doesn't need anything, but God wants relationship with us. He's not any less God if he doesn't get it, but he wants relationship with us. We are not just his playthings on a chessboard. He wants to know us and he wants us to know him. And so we see the Bible described, we have eternity in our hearts. We have a God-sized hole in our hearts where we seek God. This is where Paul goes. And so in our talking with people in a different worldview, we can talk about what we think of creation, but I think the next one is, and we're created to know God. Have you ever wanted to know God? Not just know about Him, but be in relationship with God. Do you think that's possible? And again, then you're using questions as a method to bring people back to what is their worldview and questioning their worldview. So much of this is, is, as Greg Kogel says, putting pebbles in their worldview. Just things that will start to make them question, start to make them think, and continue discussion. And perhaps feel their way in 27, feel their way towards Him and find Him. The idea is groping in the dark. And what he's doing here is saying because of sin, because of the fall, we want to know God and we're just grasping. It was so close. Through Jesus, it's so close. But on our own, we can't quite do it. He is actually not far from us. And this counters the thinking of their day again. 28, now he uses two of their poets. He quotes their poets instead of the Old Testament again because that's that's his entry point. He says, for, for in him we live and move and have our being. It's a quote that was, quote that was attributed about Zeus, but 
he's here saying, no, it, it really needs to be about the creator of all things. An idol, he's already said an idols are sort of silly. And so he's reapplying that to say, that's actually a, a right thought if it's applied to the one true God. In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we indeed are his offspring. And the idea of offspring there is we are his creation, that he created us. And, and so um, the first the first quote, the poet is Epimenides, if you care. Second one is Aratus of, of Soli. And he's using things that they know to say, even in your own knowledge, you acknowledge we're created beings. We're offspring of God. That doesn't fit either of your philosophies we're dealing with today. So why, are you, why is that one of your poets? And so he's using that to bridge into biblical truth. Need to move on. Man. Let me give you number four on the skills because this is out of this verse, 28. Use resources and arguments they will relate to if possible. I am not saying abandon Scripture. I am saying if someone doesn't understand the authority of Scripture, you might need to get them there. And so one of the ways that Paul used was some of their own thinking to say, no, your worldview doesn't even work. There's got to be something more, and then he can lead into the truth. So number four on the skills side, use resources and arguments they will relate to if possible. Paul Hill said he used their language, quoted their poets, and sought to reach them in terms they would understand. As such, his speech became a model for Christian apologists. So true. Then you can turn back over for three and four on the next page. At this point, he's established creation. He's established that God wants relationship with us and we're created for relationship with him. And now he gets to explaining that sin and idolatry break the relationship. Sin and idolatry break the relationship. So this is the question of why isn't there relationship now? If the creator created us for this, if this is in our hearts, what happened? Do you see this is just the gospel? He's just going through the basic tenets of the gospel, but in a way that is engaging their intellect and their beliefs. And he already alluded to this when he used the idea of groping around in the dark, that something is already stopping it. And so now he says, being God's offspring, okay, if we're created by God, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So he's appealing here to the greatness of the creator over creation, so then how can creation make something that's greater than the Creator? It doesn't. If I, if I build a, a, a pot for my backyard, that pot doesn't turn around and create something that's better than me. I know we can get into discussion of AI and what might happen there, but that's not where we're going with this. Paul's argument is, no, we are the created beings. How can we create anything that supplants God? It doesn't make sense. In fact, we're made in His image, so then how can an inanimate object be dad? It, it's an intellectual argument that, that had to hit home with them because their worldview falls apart at this point. There must be a divine being over us that created us. But they are worshiping creation rather than the creator. So he brings that up. And then he says a, a, a phrase that I think got under their skin a little bit. The times of ignorance got overlooked. Remember, they value reason. They value new knowledge. He goes, the times of ignorance God overlooked or he was patient with. He didn't judge right away. 
But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And so the times of ignorance, living without a thought of God, of sin and fallenness, idolatry, an unknown God, he says, that's over. Now you know. You're hearing the truth. And God is calling you to repent. And so he goes with creation. He goes with relationship. Now he talks about what the fall, what breaks relationship, that sin or idolatry or putting anything above God breaks that relationship. And he gets to repent at the end of 30 there, which leads us into the next point. In light of the urgency of coming judgment, point people to Jesus and urge a response of repentance. In light of the urgency of coming judgment, point people to Jesus and urge a response of repentance. Paul says to these people that are secularized, this God that I just told you about now calls you to repent, to turn from evil and turn completely around to follow Him. And then that relationship will happen. So he's including restoration. He's including redemption. And, and, and then 31 is just beautiful. Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, Jesus Christ, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. And so where Paul is going with is there's going to be a time of accountability. There's going to be a time of judgment. A Creator God can't let His creation do their own thing forever. There's going to be a time of judgment and He's going to judge according to your righteousness. It's going, he will judge the world in righteousness but it'll be through a man who, who God has appointed through Jesus Christ. This appointed man lived a perfect, righteous life. So he's the only one that could be this judge. He's the only one worthy. He's the only one with the credentials. And if you doubt his credentials, of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. By the way, his credentials are he rose from the dead. How about you? I'm going to defer. <laughs> And he rose from the dead proving his righteousness, that sin was conquered, that death was taken care of. This is actually an intellectual way of of sharing the cross, the resurrection, and um, redemption. And and what's beautiful to me about it is the same one that's judging us is the one that bought our righteousness. On the cross, he paid for our sins, gave us his righteousness, And He's the one that will judge whether or not we're righteous. And so He paid the price and He says, I paid the price. And there's no argument about it. There's no conflict. This is the man we serve this morning. This is the God we worship. This is a hard truth. Coming back to the resurrection, again, neither of these groups believed in the resurrection from the dead. That was the One group said there was nothing after life. The, the other group said, ah, your spark might live on in some other inanimate object. But Jesus was the judge and the solution. And so Paul brings them back to redemption through Jesus Christ. There is so much more we can go to. Books are written on this passage. Apologetics books are written on this passage. I hope I've whet your appetite just a little bit. I want to end with the response. Verse 32. And in your notes, Rupont, some marked, mocked, some were curious, and some believed. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. I took my point right out of Scripture. 
But others said, we will hear you again about this. They were curious. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Some believed. Not that many, but some believed. And these are new concepts. And when we're doing new concepts with different worldviews, they take time. And I'm reminded by Paul's example that he took time and he kept bringing them back to truth. But he shared the gospel. And he shared the basics. And he shared it in a winsome way. And he challenged their worldviews. And while the gospel can be a stumbling block to some and folly to others, to those that are called, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. We're going to end today by celebrating the Lord's Supper. And what a beautiful picture to remind ourselves that we were created for relationship with God. He wants that from us. He created us to have that with Him because in Him we have life and breath and our whole being. And we messed it up by serving others, by not following Him. We broke that relationship. But then through Jesus Christ... We can have restoration. And here the elements represent that. The bread represents Jesus' body. A body that was willingly given to us on the cross, that was crushed and bruised and broken on the cross, that He gave in our place. The blood represents the payment for sin. It represents forgiveness, fully, freely, and forever for those that believe. It represents what Jesus did to restore that relationship. And this is a time of remembrance. So, so I would ask, if you haven't believed in Jesus, study the text again. Talk to me afterwards, but don't take this because this is a symbol that says, I believe in Jesus and I give Him my heart. And I follow Him with my life. And if you've done that this morning, then you're welcome to join with us and remember what God has done. But this is about proclaiming to a lost, not knowing God world, a secularized world, that we believe in Jesus. And that He is the Creator and He restores us to relationship with Him. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You for Your sacrifice. We thank You for reaching us when we're lost, reaching us when we're groping around and don't even know what to do, Lord. I pray that we would be able to proclaim this, not just this morning, but when we go out the doors to a lost, secularized world. That we would be lights that begin to point them back to You begin to bring people back into an understanding of who you are, God. In your precious name, amen.